So um, yeah. my name is Patrick Prey uh, from CoinShift. I manage growth there. And today we're pleased to have Jacob Blish from Lido Finance uh, uh, with us to talk about well, about Lido and staked, uh, staked assets, especially staked ETH. So thanks, Jacob, for joining us. Yeah, pleasure to be here. Hopefully we'll pick up some more people as, as time goes on. I know it's been a crazy week, uh, both macroeconomically and geopolitically, but um, I think it's a great topic. So we will be recording it. We'll make the recording available uh, in our Discord, on Twitter. We'll also take out some snippets uh, and uh, publish those on, on Twitter as well. So for those of you who don't know, we're CoinShift. We um, have a treasury management application on chain built on top of Gnosis Safe. And version one, which uh, is live now, is, is more about payouts, paying contributors, full-time, part-time contributors, um, doing it more efficiently with a better overall experience. So if you're a Gnosis Safe user, we certainly welcome you to um, use our app. Uh, it's quite easy to set up. Um, however, the, our goal is not just to manage payouts, but to provide full-service treasury management application. And uh, that's really where we started to talk to Lido Finance because we want to have options for our users for how they manage their assets. And um, we, we kind of thought of that as different groups. There could be stable coins. There could be many projects have their own native token. They have to find ways to, to utilize that. And certainly uh, ETH was also another kind of category where we realized a lot of projects hold ETH and they need to think about what they need to do with that. So that naturally brought us to, uh, to Lido. <clears throat> so I guess the, um, the point of this AMA today is, is to really focus on Lido Finance as an option for treasuries, for DAOs or crypto organizations managing their treasury on chain. And we're going to assume you have some basic knowledge of Lido. I'm sure Jacob will, will talk a little bit about it in, in, um, in, some, in some detail. But the assumption here is you know a little bit about it already. So we're not going to give you like the, the, the intro to, um, to uh, staked, staked assets per se. Um, but anyway, with that, with that, uh, with that in mind, let's, let's go. The, the first thing, Jacob, I'm kind of curious about before we get into Lido is just ETH in general, um, because obviously you're talking to a lot of DAOs, a lot of organizations about how they need to man better manage their ETH, let's say within their treasuries. But how, how are, how are DAOs today using ETH? Is it, is it becoming really a, a major asset for them? Um, something that they're. Um, using to, to store value or as an investment, uh, or is it purely just maybe operational, just to cover gas costs or whatever? So what do you see when you're out there talking to Dallas now about how they're managing ETH? Yeah, candidly, it's, it's all over the place. Um, a lot of DAOs have, are drastically overweight in my, my opinion. Um, and their native tokens, so they're very heavily exposed to their native asset. Lido is is guilty of this themselves. Um, some of the the newer ones that have emerged in the so-called DeFi 2.0 wave, like Olympus or Alchemix, have done a much more proactive job of kind of managing their treasury, making sure they have some diversification of the assets. 
for for heavy ETH users or heavy ETH holders, what we found is it's either they're just not thinking about treasury management, so it's not anything malicious. It's just a, I guess I'd call it an oversight, or they happen to be accruing ETH as one of their revenue sources. So NounsDAO is a perfect example where every day they're selling a new NFT and they're always adding ETH to their treasury. So now they're starting to be more proactive and I'm just using them as a specific example, but now they are finally like, okay, we're sitting on, you know, 20,000 ETH. We should probably go do something with it instead of just letting it sit in the treasury. So we found that at some inflection point, DAOs start realizing, okay, we have these assets sitting idle. We should probably do something with them. And it's kind of a balance based on the risk profile of each of those those DAOs, which again is all over the map. Gotcha. And and by the way, I'm, we're going to open this up for questions. Obviously, it's an AMA, and so if you have, uh, if you would like to ask questions, I think you have the ability to raise your hand and. And then we'll call on you. I'm going to ask a few questions here, but then uh, maybe in 15, 20 minutes, we'll certainly open it up for, for your questions. Um, so please, you know, start thinking about what you'd like to ask Lido. Um, okay, so with the, with, the, with the treasuries themselves, how has it changed, really? I know, I think you've been with Lido for some time now, almost from the beginning. Has that the conversations now evolved a bit, uh, uh, you know, over 2021, now moving into 2022, or, or not as much as you would have expected regarding ETH as a treasury asset? But I'm also kind of curious about the, the, the trend, let's say. Yeah, it's, it's starting to become a much more common topic of conversation, both for just general treasury management as well as you know, ETH or liquid derivatives being being used. I think, you know, over the past year, there's been such growth in the space across every dimension measurable that now so many of these projects have war chests that at the beginning of 2021 was less frequent. It was more the old school DeFi players that had the huge war chests, but now you've got hundreds of different organizations across NFTs, DeFi, and institutions and VCs sitting with this capital that they're now very actively starting to look at what to do with it because why let it sit in, like in a bank, why let huge piles of cash sit in a checking account when you could put it into yield earning strategies? And then also the state of the DAO, DAO tooling has advanced. You know, Ethereum DAO tooling is good but it's not great. It's getting better every month. But then once you get off of other chains, it's, I'll just put it as terrible. It's, it's kind of at phase one of where Ethereum DAO tooling was maybe a year and a half ago. So I think the combination of, of better software, better tooling, and these massive treasuries is kind of giving rise to this whole, this whole movement. Hmm. I wonder if you bring up an interesting point about NFTs. Um, because a lot of the, the, you know, they're generating revenue in ETH, they're denominated in ETH, whereas with the, the more, let's say the earlier DeFi protocols with their large, you know, uh, uh, you know native token, um, maybe they viewed that as being highly correlated or maybe too correlated with ETH itself. So, and again, I'm, I'm just speculating, maybe there wasn't a huge advantage for them to trade their native token for ETH if the correlation was fairly high, 
Whereas with some of these newer protocols that are doing other things like NFTs, for example, I can see where it's just a natural, it's just natural for them to want to accumulate ETH as their primary treasury asset. You think that's fair to say? I do. Um, it's also partly a year ago, liquid staking didn't exist. It was a, an idea, yeah. but you know, Lido's just over one year old. So even as a concept and an industry, liquid staking didn't exist a short time ago. So like you just said, the options were hold the, the native asset, move to ETH with high correlation, or anyone that was progressive would move into a stable coin, which is also one of the, the lowest risk options that you can take. As the, the market is continuing to mature, these groups that do want to sit and one of the main reasons people tend to hold on to ETH that we found is they're either accruing it from the operations of their protocol or from NFT sales, for example. But we're also understanding it as a way to maintain long exposure to the networks that you're building on. So if you believe long term in Ethereum, it makes sense from an investment strategy to hold native Ethereum. But as like I've mentioned, liquid staking is kind of come into being now we can take that that just long position as it were and add additional value to it so instead of just holding the native asset and waiting for the price to go up now you can do more complex and advanced strategies to earn additional yield while still maintaining that long exposure to that network and even though i said uh we weren't going to get in too much detail when we talk about liquid, <laughs> just to make sure everyone, you know, kind of is on, is on the same page. When we talk about liquid staking, um, and by the way, that before I ask that, the the token itself from Lido for ETH, I, I just call it staked ETH. It's STETH. What? How do you refer to the token? STETH, or what, how, how does? What's the official way to pronounce that? Uh, we don't have one. I would say STETH is probably the most official, but <laughs> we will sometimes refer to it as STEP. And um, the wrapped bonded version on Anchor we call Beth because it's BE. So we have STEP and Beth. Probably <laughs> prime, so it's more fun. But there's no yeah. there's no strictly pronounced <laughs> recommendation. Yeah, STEP though almost sounds like some sort of like uh, condition you need antibiotics for, right? So I'm not, I'm not sure. <laughs> But okay, let's say let's say the the, the stake ETH um, uh, from Lido. Maybe just explain what does that mean to be a liquid staked asset, and just talk just briefly about how you kind of manage that process of of, of allowing people to stake their ETH through you without having to lock up, you know, their whatever thirty two ETH for for the experience. Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll try to keep it succinct and as high level as possible. Basically. Um, on all proof of stake chains, you stake your collateral and in exchange for staking, you get the rights to secure the, the network and participate in the consensus layer. And if you're doing that and being a good actor, you get paid in the native token. So in this case, we'll say Ethereum. The problem is you have to choose. Do you want to be involved in actively maintaining the chain or do you want the free liquidity of those assets? So you had this almost conflict of interest between stakers, and that was what originally led um, some of the, the founding members of Lido to come up with liquid staking, because if DeFi yields, which historically are much higher than native staking yields of, you know, four to five percent for Ethereum, if you can go ape into Nyon Cat and earn 45 percent APR on your ETH, 
why would you ever go and stake, especially if you're driven by, by monetary outcomes? So relying on pure altruism to secure a proof of stake network is a risky endeavor. So liquid staking is a way to kind of bridge that, that gap where you both can have your cake and eat it, as it were. So what liquid staking does, and there's slight different implementations depending on the provider, but liquid staking basically for Lido, we accept ETH, we accept down to 0.1 ETH, so we kind of sidestep the 32 ETH requirement for the individual. We accept it into our deposit contract, and then for whatever amount, if someone gives us one ETH, we mint one equivalent ST ETH, which is the synthetic representation of the staked ETH. Then our deposit contract bundles into 32 ETH bundles and passes it to our node operator partners. Currently on Ethereum, we have, Izzy might beat me up for not knowing this exactly, it's either 23 or 25 node operators and we're consistently expanding that, that operator set so that we can distribute the stake as evenly as possible to help keep Ethereum decentralized. And in exchange for all of that that we've built, you have this liquid representation of your staked ETH called STE for ours. And different protocols have different names for it. And then the way we bridge those two gaps is now holding that STE, you're earning your APR from staking and securing the network, in this case, 4.5% or so on Ethereum. But now you can then take it and go do other DeFi strategies, such as lending it out on Aave, which will be live next week for us, or putting it into Curve matched with ETH to do LPs and earn fees there. Um, we're, you know, we have a bunch of other integrations. So now you can have both sides of that equation, securing the network, keeping Ethereum decentralized, and being able to participate in DeFi farming. Yeah, that, that was, that's a great overview. Um... And of course, I, I, I started using um, Stake ETH myself uh, because maybe I'm not the smartest guy in the room, but it seemed to be a no-brainer. Why would I want to hold ETH if I can just hold Stake ETH and earn a nice return just for the privilege of having what with, with the peg where it is more or less the same the same asset? So maybe that's a question to you. This is, I guess, a softball question, but. Why would anyone hold ETH if they can have staked ETH and earn a yield uh, on that on on their ETH asset? So, our BHAG, our big hairy audacious goal at Lido, <laughs> is to eventually have our asset be the unit of account on Ethereum. Which, what I mean by unit of account, is exactly that. If we, assuming we have equal utility and productivity and liquidity of native Ethereum, meaning every platform that you farm ETH on, if STETH was there, we see no reason to ever hold native ETH except for gas costs. So you'll always need some amount. And as of right now, the spec for ETH 2.0 or the merge has an upper bound on how much ETH can be staked. So we're we're aware we're never expecting 100% of ETH to ever be staked because it's an impossibility and not realistic. But our theory is that as we continue building out utility and integrations around STE, exactly that narrative we're thinking should be emerging. Eventually, there will be less and less reason to hold the native asset. And this I is all, the... all also depending on the fact that like ETH survives in the long term. You know, if the merge never comes to reality, then this is all a, a moot point. But then I guess 
not just Lido, the whole ecosystem might have bigger issues. <laughs> yeah. So what is then, because I agree, I mean, it just seems to be not a natural progression that it's actually the synthetic staked ETH versions, if you will, of ETH, of which Lido clearly dominates, and we'll talk more about that in a second, but that seems to be what will become the primary asset because I can't see any reason uh, not to hold, um, you know, an, a yield-bearing uh, a token uh, of ETH, um, which just seems like the, the natural uh, progression that we'll, we'll see. But I'm kind of curious when you talk to DAOs who are holding a large amount of ETH now in their treasury, in some cases, I would imagine just sitting in a wallet, you know, what is the conversation you're having there? Because it just seems, as I said, like such a, such a no-brainer to just move that into staked ETH um, or at the very least half of it and maybe provide liquidity on curve. We'll talk more about that as well in a second. But what is the pushback, if any, for not moving the, their assets from ETH over to, to staked ETH? So we, we see a couple different topics come up and they're, they're fairly similar between all the conversations. The, the first is, and this is also the caveat or making the assumption we're talking about a DAO that has ETH. Because if we talk to a DAO that has their native token, then there's the additional conversation around should they convert their native token to something other than their native token? And then should that be liquid ETH? For treasuries that do have Ethereum in it, it's a combination of they might not even know about it, especially in the NFT community. The, the number of users that came in last year because of the NFT craze they are not DeFi experts. Many of the people in the NFT space are creators and artists and musicians. They're not here for, you know, the fin, FinTech bro movement that started with DeFi. So there's the first question of, do they even know about optionality? The next one is usually, how do they weigh or compare against different liquid staking providers? Um, and then the third one is, and you know, Lido is guilty of this as well. This is a very common, issue most treasuries have no active treasury management team i can think of one specifically fey protocol uh, or fey rari since they're, they're they're merged they actively have hired a full-on like quant they have a quantitative analysis that's been brought on or analyst that's been brought on and his job is literally to manage their multi-hundred dollar million treasury and produce as much yield as possible and i think that's going to be a huge movement over the next so that last one is the most critical. It's it's not that they don't have interest or time or desire. It's they have no one to manage it and actually dig in and look at what are the best strategies. How do they manage risk mitigation? How do they manage liquidity that they need in the short, medium and long term and then diversify the assets across those? So that's that's usually kind of the three topics that come up most commonly once people get their heads around it it's there's not a huge amount of pushback it's more about how much should we deploy should we mix it between providers or not things like that yeah exactly and completely agree the there's not a lot of them but the but the the projects protocols that have um yeah let's say an actively managed treasury where they've brought in uh, let's say a professional to manage it uh, it really makes a tremendous difference. I would also add UMA protocol is another group we talk to. It just has they have such a well-managed treasury. Um, and I think it's even a competitive advantage for them now. 
Um, in fact, we're hoping to bring them on as well to talk about what they've done because I think it's super, super interesting. But then I think it's fair to say that as, as this space matures and we see more, um, more of a kind of a professional approach, if you will, to the, to the management of the treasury, that's probably going to be a good thing for uh, liquid staked assets and, and, and uh, Lido Finance in, in, in particular. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And I would also throw in Gnosis um, just as, yeah. as one more yeah. because, you know, Gnosis, I was around back when they did their initial sale. They did their Dutch auction and <laughs> it sold out so fast. They actually only sold a little bit of the supply. They did a tremendous job with treasury management. I mean, they turned, I think, $12 million into over a quarter or a half a billion at this point. And now they're weaponizing that treasury to build out, you know, arguably one of the most used multi-sigs in the industry. They're moving into Gnosis chain and a bunch of other initiatives. Um, and they same, they have a full active treasury management team um, that just has been executing and turning it into a competitive advantage. And I think it's a really interesting narrative um, having come from the web to like traditional startup world, you raise capital, you usually only get what is the bare minimum to raise. And then you, you covet that capital desperately. It's your lifeblood with web three, since capital is a little bit more of a commodity, at least right now, you know, pending, pending no bear market. What can happen is startups that raise capital can now immediately start putting it to work. Because if you raise five or $10 million, you don't need most of that capital for the next six months to a year. So it's much easier using Web3 to start deploying it and earning eight, 10, 15% with relatively low risk. And if you're managing that treasury well, all of a sudden you don't have to do additional fundraises. And that becomes a really powerful mechanism that I don't think is actively talked about. I know people are aware of, of it, but if you have, you know, $50 million that you've managed to, which is a lot, of course, but if your treasury has managed to accrue that and you're earning 10 or 15%, that's more than covering most Dow's payroll. So they can literally not worry about running out of funds and focus only on building and shipping. So it removes some of the fear that like comes when you're, you're worried about the next few months of runway. And I think that's a really interesting kind of turn of events that I had never seen in Web2 as much. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and, and definitely with Gnosis, we are, uh, as I'm sure you are as well, because I know they're a big uh, stake ETH uh, user. Um, we're talking to them as well regularly. Uh, I guess the only issue with Gnosis is the complexity is so great. It's just amazing what they're doing that uh, to kind of, for, for, the, for the typical DAO, it, there's definitely lessons to be learned there. It's just amazing what, what's going on over there. But the complexity is also incredibly high. Um, but yeah, it's just uh, just amazing what they've done. And as you said, they've you know, turned that into a huge competitive advantage for them now um, with well, their treasury. And that's why, that's why I think some of the tooling like CoinShift is so important because even us right now for some of our, for a very basic multi-sig transaction, it's straightforward. But if there's any sort of customization or we need to send it through a bridge and making that multi-sig be able to interact with either smart contracts or more complex setups, I need a dev supporting me when I'm signing some of these transactions to verify and make sure I'm, I'm looking at the bytecode because that is not what my day job usually is. 
And in Web3, you know, I want to make sure I'm not sending six figures to the wrong address because then it's <laughs> it's gone forever. So there is on more non-normal transactions that we have, which are fairly regular, um, I'd still need a developer to kind of, or someone more technical than me to kind of just <laughs> babysit me through it to make sure we're validating everything correctly. So anything that makes that experience human readable and, you know, click and deploy and user user friendly is obviously a big win for us. Yeah, absolutely. We, we, um, with the, with payouts, which we're doing now, I think we have made the process easier and it's a better user experience. Of course, leveraging the fantastic, um, you know, kind of core smart contract functionality we have from Gnosis, but where we need to, to where we're putting all of our development effort now is our V2 because it's still too difficult to do things. Um, uh, for example, uh, asset management, managing, investing, you know, through a multi-sig environment is incredibly painful. There's no doubt about it. Um, so I'm hoping that will change soon. As I said, that's our primary focus now for V2, and we hope to have that released in Q2. And we think there's gonna be some significant strides there to make it much easier for you. Um, but I agree, that's, that's another kind of key um, missing component within DeFi, which is the tooling uh, to make the user experience uh, much better, um, especially in that multi-sig environment with all the money that's being moved around. Um, what about, you mentioned, or I mentioned actually the success of Lido. It's clear. Uh, you're by far the market leader. What is the percent now um, that you, uh, of the, let's say, liquid staked market within, at least for ETH, but within DeFi, what, what's, what's uh, Lido's current market share approximately? Yeah, for of the liquid staking providers um, in the liquid staking market, we're about 85.5% or so. Um, there for all staking, both native and liquid, I think we just crossed 20% market share like this week or a couple of days ago. Wow. And the I guess that brings up the criticism which I'm sure you hear at times, which is we have Lido, it's becoming too powerful, um, too dominant in the space. Now we have centralization risk through Lido. How do you respond to that? So we built, I say we, you know, as the Lido team, since I, I was not here at the original conception of it, I've only been with Lido about six months. Um, Lido was built to make sure that Ethereum or other POS networks are in fact not centralized. We use a combination of a couple different things to make sure, I mentioned earlier, we make sure that no single node operator gets a disproportionate amount of a stake um, that sometimes is referred to as stake flattening. So making sure that we distribute it so that no sing like one single node operator doesn't have 30% of, of Lido staked assets because that would be a form of centralization. So making sure that we are distributing that stake as broadly and evenly as we're able to. And then we're governed by, by the LDO token. So everything is done through on-chain governance. Um, and we view that as a fairly democratic process. There is one caveat that will sometimes get mentioned in that our node operating process today has a whitelisting process. Not anyone can join just to be a node operator. And that was a very conscious decision you know, again, going back oh, a little over a year ago, 
details about the merge and ETH2 were still being specked out. No one really knew what that was going to look like. And for a metaphorical name here, Bob and his garage, nothing against Bob, but it was a, seen as a risk to let Bob run a node operator or a validator without kind of understanding, does he have the expertise and the skills to maintain five nines uptime and quality control? Because the way Lido is built is we socialize any losses. If there, have, if there are any slashing events, we socialize those across all of the stake. So if every node operator is a good actor doing a good job, and then Bob is a good actor, but not good at his job, is that fair, you know, at a very nascent stage to, to let people get punished? So we made the decision to onboard trusted known entities, like they have a real world presence. So there's, there's the ability to know who they are and who's behind the scenes until we reach kind of this maturity level, which now that we've been here for about a year and the merge is quote unquote coming soon, we're starting to explore the process of removing that whitelist and allowing more node operators to come on board. Um, but it's it's an evolution. It's it's just like a baby bird. You don't shove it out of the nest and say, go fly, you're free. It's got to have time to grow and mature and strengthen itself up before it leaves the nest. Yeah, it makes perfect sense. In a perfect world, sure, you can be fully decentralized and permissionless on day one, but that's not the world we live in. And, and it sounds like you have a plan to get there. It's just going to be a, a process. So um, I think that uh, that makes perfect sense to me. What about the, the DAOs themselves that you're that use your uh, that you stake need? I'm curious. Um, are you out there actively selling to them? Are they coming to you? Um, I know you have a referral program as well. Is that how you're kind of getting uh, more interest in and more uptake of your solutions? How are you kind of approaching these DAOs and what's what's working for you? So it's it's a little bit of both. The the DAOs, the most significant DAOs that have staked with us um, kind of just did it on their own. Like so for Fay Protocol, since I mentioned them, that was a community led initiative that we were not actively involved in during the process. And then they did an initial stake. They saw good results. They scaled that up um, a few times, and now they're looking at another expansion. So at this point, we're now actively talking to them to understand the community's needs around if they were to stake more, you know, what are their concerns, risks, just having a more active part. At the same time, we are actively reaching out to DAOs and again, it's a broad spectrum. Some DAOs are fully decentralized and community led. Some are not, some are in between. Um, so depending on the DAO and the process, we're either submitting proposals to get community you know, conversation and feedback. Sometimes we're just talking to some of the members of the community or the team. Um, so it's, it's a very wide spectrum of results, but we're seeing more, I guess I'd call it inbound the past couple of months as liquid staking is becoming a more known topic, as large institutions are talking about staking as a concept, um, we're starting to see more inbound interest, which is of course making the job easier, but we're very actively pursuing other DAOs as well. And how active are you in, I don't even know if this is the right way to describe it, but let's say the secondary benefits of holding staked ETH. So, the primary benefit, of course, is I, I'm own, I own ETH with a yield. 
So in my view, my simplistic uh, mind, I would say Steak Deep is better than than ETH, but there's also kind of an ecosystem and, and things you can do with your Steak Deep, which I guess are very important to users. You just mentioned earlier, Ava, that uh, I believe you said next week you'll be um, uh, an asset uh, for you can use now on Ava, which is I, I assume is, is huge. So congratulations for that. Um, how involved are you in that kind of that building out that ecosystem? Maybe another example could be Curve, right? And participating in the Curve Wars and and you know uh, incentivizing liquidity providers. Is that something you view as, as a critical part of your overall strategy for Stake Deep? So I am <laughs> I am very involved. I I lead all of our, our integrations and partnerships. So that is that is my day-to-day -day and my borderline obsession um, is making sure that we're integrated. There's things to do with those assets and finding um, other partners and, and users to help have them stake with Lido. Um, I, I apologize. My brain just had a blank. What was the other part of your question you'd asked? Oh, hello? Sorry, sorry. I guess it's also just how important is it to your strategy and how active are you getting wow. in it? So it's, you know, making sure that Ave supports um, State Deep is, is, is clearly part of that. Um, but things like, you know, uh, bribing or uh, providing incentives, I guess yeah. is a better way to say it, for, for, for providing liquidity on curve. It's, um, is that also something you view as like a critical part of the overall strategy to drive adoption? Yes, thank you. It was the liquidity um, rewards or liquidity mining. So for Lido, I'll speak to our unique situation and specifically for Ethereum. Since there is no withdrawal mechanism, so if you stake with us or natively, you cannot withdraw your ETH. We provide the curve pool as a way to, or other pools to allow you to swap out of your position, but that's using other liquid Ethereum. It's not in fact removing it out of the beacon chain. So our penultimate goal on especially Ethereum is to maintain that peg as close to one-to-one -one as possible. That is like nothing else in the grand scheme matters if we can't hold our peg. So providing liquidity incentives, whether that's directly by, you know, sprinkling LDO on the LPs and curve or indirectly by going through, you know, the curve wars like convex or urine holders or card redacted cartel or any of the many others that have popped up. Um, they kind of create the same outcome of making sure that we have sufficiently deep liquidity so that whether it's a retail user or a large whale can swap into or out of their positions and not destabilize the peg. So that's why like the curve pool especially has, I think, 4 billion TVL or whatever the equivalent is based on price right now. Most day to day, the trading volume isn't that high, but we have had cases where there's been trades of 50 or 60,000 Ethereum that if we hadn't had sufficiently deep liquidity would have destabilized the peg. And then if the peg ever does shift, usually arbitrage will get it back fairly quickly. That's why we maintain multiple pools of liquidity. And, you know, once the merge happens and you're able to withdraw your ETH, in the short to medium term, we don't think 
liquidity incentives will stop because the most immediate thing we predict happening is there's going to be a massive queue for everyone wanting to unstake, especially if you've staked for over a year, a large amount, you're going to want to recompound those earnings. And so if a lot of people start trying to withdraw stake, that's going to back up the withdrawal queue, which might take a couple of months. But once you go out past that, and we assume the queue's been solved and withdrawals are ready, we will probably prioritize incentives much less. We'll still need them for bootstrapping new pools or you know, with special launches or certain mechanisms. But we expect at that point, arbitrage in the, the market itself should maintain maintain the peg automatically, especially since withdrawals will be a thing. So you can choose kind of, do I want to withdraw through the, the proper channels or do I want to swap out through a pool? And depending on the cost benefit, you can make a decision based on if one is better than the other from a cost perspective. Gotcha. So the incentives now for our our friends who hold convex uh, might not be uh, available in the months ahead. I guess depending on how things play out with with well, uh, we expect it, <laughs> to to just make sure we expect incentives <laughs> to be continuing at least for the next year. It's really okay. going to be determined by if and when the merge comes, and how the the kind of unstaking queue is processed. But yes, at some point, we, we don't expect to ever turn them completely off, but we will be able to be much more strategic about how they're deployed. Right now, they're a necessary evil, but longer term, we view them as a more strategic weapon that we can deploy instead of kind of a defensible need as they are today. Gotcha. Well said. Okay. So I've been talking a lot, clearly. Um, do we have any questions from uh, any participants? I don't know, Sukanshi, is, is anyone raising their hands? I'd love to, to hand over the mic uh, if anyone has any questions now. No, everyone is enjoying listening, you guys. <laughs> <laughs> We're blowing their minds. Okay, well, <laughs> okay, well of course, uh, just raise your hand. I'm going to keep going, but for just... Uh, Please, uh, Sukanchi, interrupt me when, when someone would like to ask something. Um, Done. Great. So um, what do you think, just to, give, to pick your brain a bit, um, holding, I've got my stake deed. Uh, I'm a tre let's say I'm, I'm, I have my own DAO or I'm, I'm some organization that's doing now on chain. Like step one is I have my own ETH. That's kind of the beginner strategy. I want to invest in ETH. And I think, okay, stake ETH is a better option. I'm earning yield. What do you see as some of the more, though, let's say, intermediate to advanced strategies of leveraging stake ETH within kind of the treasury? What are some things you've, you've thought, wow, that's pretty impressive what they're doing over there? Um, yeah, the, the most advanced has been some of the stuff that Gnosis is doing with their internal treasury team. Faye is also starting to get into some pretty, pretty interesting things. Um, the most intermediate but also easiest is just popping over to anchor <laughs> and abusing their their fixed 19.5 percent apr um the caveat though is you give up your eth rewards in exchange for their ust stablecoin so there is some risk depending on your view of of the terra ecosystem in ust not good not bad but you know just a different consideration um 
We see a lot of deployment into the curve pools because there's no impermanent loss because it's STETH against ETH. So if you end up with one or the other, it's kind of market neutral. Um, and then you can take the curve LP tokens and put those into additional things such as convex. Um, we've seen people playing around with ribbon strategies where they're both providing STETH as liquidity and they're doing a little bit of market making on the other side. Um, so that's that's kind of what we've seen. We expect to see a lot of interest in, I guess I'd call it leverage staking once things like Aave come online, because we view like SDE as very good lending collateral, not as good for borrowing, because we just can't think of a use case of why you would want to borrow against yourself other than pure leverage. But with Aave, what's especially interesting is ETH is the same. ETH is usually used as a collateral asset, but it's not really borrowed as much. Stables are the most borrowed uh, currency. So we see STETH is going one order higher where you lend the STETH, you borrow ETH, and then you cycle that back in because assuming the terms, actually Fuse has, has a pool they stood up, which is brilliant. You can collateralize your STETH and borrow, in this case, Fay token, their stable coin, and the borrowing term is only 1%. So if you're, you know, 4.8% APR or 4.5 minus 1%, it's 3.5 of free return. So you can loop through that a couple times and bump that up to like 15 or 20% while mitigating to a degree your exposure. So those are some of the more advanced ones. You know, truthfully, I haven't seen anything that's like really, really exotic or unusual to date. But I think that will come as we continue building out integrations and DeFi keeps spinning up new uh, primitives. And I've been I've been mainly talking about ETH, obviously, um, because the, the typically the projects we're dealing with there, maybe they started on Ethereum. <coughs> excuse me. Um, maybe they moved to other EVM chains, but it's kind of a Ethereum base. But you do more than just stake the. Um, you have Stake Soul, I believe, Luna, Stake Luna, as you mentioned, uh, Stake Matic, maybe. Um, how, do you, how do you see, what about these other assets? I know it's, it's probably a smaller percent of your overall business, although I would imagine growing. Um, are treasuries themselves looking to expand beyond ETH into some of these other assets? I'm, I'm actually curious if like the kind of the traditional EVM protocol is also looking to hold Solana to some degree or Luna, or that really hasn't happened yet. And and the people who are interested in those types of, of, of stake Luna, stake Solana, uh, stake um, Sol, they're just typically on those chains themselves and primarily focused on those chains themselves. It's more the latter. Generally, we have found, and of course this isn't you know prescriptive, we found that DAOs and projects tend to covet the native asset of the chain on which they are building. So broadly, EVM usually likes Ethereum. Now that's a loaded term because Polygon with Matic is also Ethereum, but Ethereum, for example, is most popular on Ethereum. It's very popular on Polygon and Avalanche as an example, but it's not nearly as popular on Solana or Terra. It has some uses in like Anchor protocol because of that amazing APR rate. But generally the native protocols deal with and have a lot more volume and liquidity around their, their native assets. So 
change as protocols are rapidly expanding to a multi-chain world. You know, Anchor protocols looking to bridge into the EVMs. They're looking at expansion to like Polygon and Avalanche and others. Um, as EVM chains or projects start moving to other EVM layers on top of non-EVM chains. So Aurora in the near ecosystem is an EVM compatible layer. Moon River and Moonbeam over in the Polkadot ecosystem. You've got Juno and EVM OS in the Cosmos. Um, so I think that answer will get <laughs> much muddier as the lines blur between where an EVM or Ethereum ecosystem stops and others start, which I guess is a good thing from a usability standpoint too. Yeah, and what about the, we just stick with EVM compatible chains. The, can I use my staked ETH um, on any of those chains? And just, are there options for me? So if I go into Avalanche or Polygon, will there be options for staked ETH? Uh, like I have on on main or those uh, for staked ETH itself, it's really still Ethereum mainnet where I have kind of the flexibility to use an Ava or Curve or wherever. So today, most of the use cases for each of our our liquid assets are majority on their native network. Again, the exception is Anchor for STETH and soon STSOL. You'll be able to use those as deposits in the Terra ecosystem. We are very actively looking at expansion plans for EVM chains, especially around L2s with, you know, the price of Ethereum mainnet pushing a lot of the, the long tail retail out. We need to go where the people are. So we're exploring like Arbitrum, Optimism, Polygon and Avalanche. And yes, I know those are L2s versus side chains, but for our purposes, they serve the same effect of being a scalability solution next to or adjacent to to Ethereum. And even more of a caveat, Avalanche, I understand has aspirations to be its own thing. So please don't beat me up on crypto Twitter for that. Um, but we are planning to more aggressively grow and it's pretty easy to track where we grow. Wherever we see large pockets of native Ethereum is probably a target for expansion. So Arbitrum has a lot of locked up ETH even arguably Ronin chain, the Axie Infinity, you know, fork they made, they have a lot of ETH. So they're a potential target. Maybe we want to try to, I haven't put a lot of thought into this, but anywhere we see big pockets of the native asset is most likely where we're going to try to expand so we can hopefully capture some of it. Perfect. Uh, Arbitrum, please, Jacob. I have some ETH <laughs> over there. I'd love to, <laughs> while I have your ear, you know, I can, uh, I can lobby. We are, um, we are very get... <laughs> aggressively looking, looking at that. And, you know, our, our first expansion is just going to be standing up a simple swap pool on one of the DEXs so that you can just move back and forth between SDETH and Ethereum on one of them. But the, the consideration and decision-making process is if we have to start taking on technical debt, you know, where do we prioritize? But Arbitrum is definitely on the list. It has come up regularly, but so are many others. So it makes it difficult. Understand. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm sure the process it is, isn't, uh, you know, get, get Jacobs here, but I probably need to get into your DAO uh, and start to lobby. And that brings up maybe the next topic, which is uh, the Lido DAO and your own treasury and how you're managing it. We spoke about 
kind of professional management and you know uh, asset uh, diversification and ETH as a, as a primary asset, especially stake ETH. What's happening within your own treasury managed by the Lido DAO? <laughs> uh, this is a case of do as I say, not as I do. I do. Um, we, we have, I mean, candidly, it's we are not unique. We are just, we have so many conflicting priorities, you know, and we're growing rapidly that it's been more about survival and expansion than it is about optimizing our treasury. So we're, we're very heavily based in LDO token, our, our governance token. We have a good amount as a backstop in native Ethereum, just in case of any slashing event, events, which to date have been zero, knock on wood. Um, but even that 20,000 ETH, we're having some conversations. Should we convert some of it to ST ETH ourselves, and then do something as simple as a curve LP? Because then at least we're earning additional yield. We also automatically diversify our treasury by our, by our business model. Because we take a percentage protocol fee of any of the yield earned in that token, it means every new network we expand to over time, we're going to be accruing those assets as the liquid staking versions of themselves. So we've built up, uh, I believe, a few thousand STE. We're building up ST Soul, ST Luna. You know, we've got KSM and soon Matic. So we'll be starting to build those positions as well. But very candidly, we have done a, a poor job and it goes to the same reasons I mentioned earlier. We just have too much work and no one is dedicated to full-time treasury management. So it's kind of a pardon my French, a half-assed attempt at, you know, doing the best we can with people. That's <laughs> my core competency is not being a, a CFO. You know, I can balance my budget, but I don't feel confident balancing a couple hundred million dollars worth of assets because I don't professionally know what I'm doing. I'm just a degenerate DeFi monkey. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and that's, uh, I, we've seen the same thing. Uh, with, with the with the the DAOs and organizations we're talking to, often we think a lot of these issues are maybe because of the technology, and of course that plays a role. We've talked about the DAO tooling needs to get better in some areas, but a lot of it is just that it's just the people, um, the processes, trying to figure it out through the DAO, how to prioritize things, and and you know it's it's just a. Uh, it's nothing new, right? It's just uh, we like to think sometimes that this is something new and revolutionary that managing through a DAO and I'm sure there are some revolutionary aspects to it, but at the end of the day, it's still people, right? And still processes. And that's, that can be the, the bottleneck at times. So definitely. Yeah. What we, we haven't solved decentralization of the, the human capital management problem, coordinating, <laughs> coordinating all the people in the meat space still is a thing. Yeah. Gotcha. So uh, again, any questions, please? Because we're almost uh, finished. Uh, I just have a couple of more. Um, so again, Sukanshi, let me know if anyone would like to ask something. Um, what, what's coming up? So 2022, you've had an un unbelievable year. You're not even, you know, very old protocol. You're already completely dominating, um, the liquid stake, stake market, uh, space, um, you know, over 80%. Um, so, you know, in incredibly impressive short amount of time. What's, what's your focus for 2022? Yeah, candidly, it's, it's probably pretty boring. Um, from a high level, it's just starting to expand as aggressively and quickly as we can. Um, now that it's clear that liquid staking is a thing and is going to exist with or without us, um, that means competition has started popping up and 
as we've seen in DeFi, where a common strategy is, hey, that thing on Ethereum was wildly successful, but that thing doesn't exist on this other chain. Let's go build our own version of it. That's starting to happen. And so, you know, we just launched uh, KSM, the Kusama network last Friday, which is leading up to us launching on DOT. I, I don't want to give any specific timelines because that's hard, but roughly a couple months, um, DOT should be launching STmatic. Fingers crossed is next week, pending any technology issues. Um, after that is Avalanche and then Cosmos. And Cosmos is something I'm especially interested in just because as they build out their, it's called IBC inter blockchain communication with uh, interchain accounts, the composability and ability to interact between different chains. And Ethereum's working on their own version of this as well where basically I can execute a transaction on one chain and have it do a thing on the other chain. Um, that's really exciting for us because it means the the composability of Lido's assets and as a protocol will start becoming much more fluid. So the name of the game this year is increase the number of integrations on each of the networks we exist on, making sure there's there's fun things to do in DeFi and then expanding the protocol very aggressively where we can. So Kanchi, are there any questions before we wrap it up? Just to make sure uh, we, we've given everyone the chance. <laughs> <laughs> I think you have covered everything. <laughs> like Jacob, it was a great, it was a great discussion. Um, you know, I'm a huge fan of, of, of Lido, been using uh, Stake Deep uh, almost from the beginning. Uh, so it seems like a no-brainer to me, and I hope more treasuries um, look into this. Uh, thank you. Thank you for, for coming on. Um, as I mentioned, we're going to make the recording available soon. Uh, you can also join our Discord, please, or follow us on Twitter uh, for updates and snippets of the conversation. Um, so, uh, Jacob, anything else you'd like to say before we, before we finish this? A uh, little bit of self-servingness here. We are actively hiring for <laughs> for a number of roles. Um, stop in the Discord, reach out on Twitter, Telegram, Smoke Signal, whatever the the crypto channel of choice is, um, and reach out. It is very intimidating to get started with DAOs, not just ours, just generally. It's kind of overwhelming, but we we are always looking for talented people to to help out. So reach out with any questions or if you feel like you you want to contribute in some way we'd love to have you okay and with that thank you again jacob uh, thanks to everyone for participating have a great weekend and uh it's a little crazy out there so everyone please stay safe bye bye yes thank bye you so much everyone. have a good one